The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Yes, I've been reminded many times by my daughter and my son, actually, that I'm a doctor, but not the kind that helps people. (laughs) I like to think I help people, but eh, you never know. Well, I am actually going to be probably doing less preaching today and a little more teaching today, so bear with me on that. Um, It's what I do, so I figured why not do what I do, right, and uh, try to be uh, honest to that. So you, I'm going to ask you to do something right now that you may not have heard in a long time. I need you to open your Bibles. I don't have a lot of the scriptures up on the screen this morning for you, so I want you to actually open up. And even though I teach New Testament for a living, we are going to start in Psalm 116. Okay, so we'll get there in just a minute. It is an honor to be able to, to speak on the topic of going uh, this during Missions Month. And uh, my wife, who is chairing the missions committee, looked far and wide low and high to find someone to preach this week and then settled for me. (laughs) Everybody else said no. Anyways, so hopefully I can get my slides to work here. It is the middle button. Nope. I figured it out. I'm a teacher. This is the topic that we're going to be talking about today. Why should we go? Now, I don't know about you, but uh, if you were raised in church like I was, this is just one of those things that's just sort of socialized into you as you're growing up in the church. It's enculturated. It's part of who you are. It's just, this is what we do. We go. But I want us to think this morning about the, the motivation for why we go. It's really what this question is about. What motivates us? What is it that actually propels us out into and among the nations, the people groups, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ? And just to be clear with you straight up front, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the very grace of God that motivates us, and I hope that we'll see that uh, by the end of our lesson today. Psalm 116. I'll be reading actually from what is called the Tanakh. Uh, Jamie mentioned in her, in her uh, um, pre-communion uh, speech there that she was using the new uh, Jewish Bible, and this is actually published by the Jewish Publication Society. And it is a, uh, a, a translation of the Hebrew Bible that I find to be very interesting And I'm reading from it on purpose today because the language that gets used in this translation encapsulates exactly uh, what the ancient world would have thought about this whole notion of grace. So we'll, we'll point that out when we get there. I love the Lord, for he hears my voice, my pleas. For he turns his ear to me whenever I call. The bonds of death. Now, it doesn't take a dissertation to notice that this doesn't sound good, does it? The bonds of death encompassed me. The torments of Sheol overtook me. 
Sheol is a Hebrew word for pit. It's not the place you want to be. You'd much rather want to be under the wing and the protection of the Lord, but the psalmist, who is speaking here as a representative, so he's not just speaking for himself, but as a representative for his people group. We know them as Jewish people, Judeans. And he's recounting a moment of God's grace, but first, the dark place, the Sheol, the pit. I came upon trouble and sorrow, and I invoked the name of the Lord. O Lord, save my life. Clearly not the place the psalmist or his people want to be. But then you notice a little bit of a switch in the poem. The Lord is gracious and beneficent. One of the cool things about Hebrew poetry is you get a lot of these kinds of repetition where there's parallelism. And this happens to be synonymous parallelism. There are all different kinds of parallelism that can be used. But here you have the Lord being ascribed to the Lord these characteristics of the kind of God that he is. And he basically says the same thing twice. The Lord is gracious and gracious. Or the Lord is beneficent and beneficent. This is the language of a God or character of a God who gives, who is willing to give in when someone or a people group are tied down by the bonds of death and headed for Sheol. He is a giving, a gracious and beneficent God. The psalmist also says that our God is compassionate. And here you get a little bit more insight into the actual attitude of God who hears the plea or the pleas of those who are on their way to Sheol, who can't undo the ropes of death, the knots in the ropes of death. He is willing to give in and do something about it. Verse six, the Lord protects the simple. Now this isn't the simple in terms of you know, the, the frugal or those who, who maybe are not as intelligent or others. It has nothing to do with that. The Lord protects those who are humble. And in fact, the Lord protects those who are humbled. We see this language also in the New Testament where we're actually told to humble ourselves before the Lord And then what does the Lord do? He exalts, he lifts up. The Lord protects the simple. I was brought low and he saved me. He lifted me up. When you are headed for the pit, which, you know, just the pit, it's like a hole in the ground, so you could think when the Lord saves, he exalts, he lifts up from the pit. Be at rest once again, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. You, now he addresses God, You have delivered me from death. My eyes are clear from their tears. My feet are clear from the stumbling. I shall walk before the Lord in the lands of the living. I trust in the Lord. Out of great suffering I spoke, and I said, all people are false. We've actually already heard this theme a little bit this morning in our worship time as well. The the psalmist here is saying, we are not trusting in people. We're not trusting in the world as it tells us what to do. We're not trusting in the Pharaoh, 
but we are trusting in God. And the reason is because the pharaohs of the world, the authorities of the world, the curiori, the lords of the world, would say, you need to do this, that, and the other. And it may very well be, in the context of the psalm, that that's what actually sent them on their way to the pit, that those were actually the bonds that were entangling the psalmist and his people. They got stuck trying to live out what the lords of the world were saying. But then they cried out to the Lord he saved, and the trustworthiness of the Lord comes up here. All people are false. They're fake. They're not trustworthy, but Yahweh is trustworthy. Verse 12, how can I repay? May seem like an odd choice of terms. How can I repay the Lord for all his bounties to me? Here's where we actually come to a very important point about grace, about that which motivates us. Now, I am a teacher, so I have a diagram. If you've been in any of my classes at OC, you probably haven't seen this diagram because I just made it, but you've heard me talk a lot about this. This is something that is, I view as a core value of the, uh, of the church, of the people of God, and it's grace. Now, I don't know how many of you are you know, daily Bible readers, but I would guess that even if you're just you know, every now and then again reader of the Bible, you have heard or read where the scriptures refer to God as Father, right? So there's an interesting thing about this. Whenever in the ancient world you referred to someone as Father and they were not your blood father, they're not your actual blood kin father, this was language that is used to talk about a patron. So this would be, a patron would be somebody who is the giver of grace, the giver of benefaction. Now, the way it also worked in the ancient world is you, there, there wasn't any such thing as kind of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. You were born into a certain level of honor. You were born into a family of, say, I don't know, carpenters, workers with hands. And the expectation for you was that you would maintain your, your position there your whole life. And if you could do that, then you would be considered honorable, at least to some extent. You stay in your lane and you don't deviate. The only way that you could actually get out of a Sheol, a pit, metaphorically speaking, would be if someone could come along and you could make a plea and they would give in and show compassion and do something about it. And that's what the patron would do. So you'll notice on this slide, down in the bottom left, I have reference to clients or slaves of the cosmos. You probably have heard this Greek word, cosmos. It's the word for world. But it's more than just this thing we stand and spin on, you know, that I guess goes around the sun. That's what I'm told anyway. I'm not good at science or math. Uh, I can parse Greek verbs for you, but that's, you know. Anyways, clients are slaves of the cosmos. This basically is the cosmos as a world order, a a system of thinking, doing, feeling, and believing. And so as the scriptures describe this, people are trapped in the bonds of death as slaves of the cosmos, being told what to do by those who are important, the somebodies of the world. Those who, in our case, we talk a lot about who have power or influence, they have the ability to influence. 
They may live in certain places in California and you know, you might see them on big screens. They might be sports superstars, whatever the case may be. It's interesting to me though, how often when people from this group say, this is what you ought to be doing, these are the clothes you ought to wear, this is the energy drink you should be drinking, that the rest of us are like, ooh, yeah, if they're doing it, we gotta do it. Slaves to the world. But the only thing that this can lead you to is Sheol, the pit, and division, and dissension, and fighting. Why? Because you end up with crossed loyalties. Lots of different people trying to vie to be your patron, and we end up kind of getting caught in this cycle of trying to find out what's best for me. So we end up crying out to God and we ask him, we plead to God, please help us out of this mess because we can't get out of it on our own. There is nothing we can do to get out of it on our own. And that's when God, who is a compassionate God, hears the pleas, remembers his promises, and does for his people what people cannot do for themselves. He gives grace. And we often talk about grace as being free, but I want to make sure we're clear on one thing Free grace does not mean that, you, that, it's, that it's free, that it doesn't require anything for us. I'll talk about that in just a second. What it does mean is that the gift is uncoerced. God actually, because he is God, could say no. But because God is compassionate, he says yes. And that's when he showers us with grace and things that we talk about like forgiveness. And at that moment, we undergo a status transformation or an enhancement. Let me put it into biblical terms for you. Um, Think about the Exodus. People trapped, slaves, belonging to Pharaoh, bottom left corner of this. They cry out, God hears their cries, remembers his covenant that he made with their fathers. He acts, he gives benefaction, he rescues, is the language that is used in the text and also referred to in the New Testament. He rescues, and they no longer belong to, they're no longer slaves of Pharaoh, who is a representative of the way the world does things, but now they belong to God. They're servants or slaves of God. So no longer nobody's despised and whatnot. Maybe by the way of the world, the way the world looks at things, yes, but when you're part of the family and group of God, you're no longer a nobody, you're a somebody. We undergo this status transformation. In Colossians, you see the language in chapter one, verse 14, of being rescued. And then there's this language of transformed or uh, transported almost from the authority of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's status transformation in a nutshell. But there's a bit that goes along with that. Ah, you may not be able to see all that, and I don't expect you to read all this. I want you to pay attention to what's circled there in the red. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? When God does give grace, it's not because he owes us anything. It's uncoerced. It's free gift. We're not talking about works-based righteousness. You don't earn any of that. It is purely on the basis of God's mercy that he chooses to do something for you as a patron. However, the free gift, the giving is free and uncoerced, but the receiving of the gift, the acceptance of the grace, puts us into a relationship with God. We often talk about being in a relationship with God, but we don't often unpack what that actually is or looks like. 
It's actually a relationship of obligation. This is precisely how our Old Testament and New Testament forebears in the faith would have understood grace. It's why the psalmist asks the question, how can I repay? That that thought even enters into his mind is a result of this. But here's the kicker. Well, let me just ask it in the form of a question. I think we all know the answer. How can we repay? Is it even possible? When you think about what God has done for his people, it is something that who is from, from a patron who is of such a higher status than we, who has done something for us that is so incredible and I would even say incredulous, there is no way on earth that we can repay God for what he has done for us. This is how it would have been understood in the ancient world too. Often these things happen and the people who receive the grace, they, they don't, what do we do? But we're in this relationship of obligation. What do we do? What are the expectations? Well, I would kind of want to know what that looks like as well. We have to think of ourselves as being, living in this never-ending debt of gratitude to God. Maybe you've heard this phrase before where you, maybe you've even uttered it yourself where someone has done something for you and you say, I owe you a debt of gratitude. And the idea that lies behind that is, is that you will continually do a few things, really, in the case of God, when I say continually do a few things, I mean for as long as you're alive, you're going to do a few things that are going to enhance the name of God. Here are the expectations. Oops, I went one too far. What do you do? First of all, you express utmost loyalty to the benefactor, to the giver. Even if fortunes turn. So if you owe a, an eternal debt of gratitude to God, you show your loyalty, you demonstrate to Yahweh this gratitude. You're always giving thanks. You're verbalizing it. Not only are you verbalizing it, but you're also living it. The Old Testament talks about it in these terms. You make famous the name of the Lord. You make famous the name of Yahweh. You don't make famous the name of Pharaoh or of any other Pharaoh types. Your debt of gratitude gets expressed by going out among all people groups and when asked, and even if not asked, you become a herald of the good news of God, of what God has done for you. The psalmist says it interestingly. I raise the cup of deliverance, verse 13, and I invoke the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. The death of his faithful ones is grievous in the, sight, in the Lord's sight. O oh Lord, I am your slave. Your slave, the son of your maid slave, maiden slave. You have undone the cords that bound me. See the language of moving from, from one owner to another owner, slave of the world, slave of, of Yahweh. Here he goes with now his debt of gratitude. As your servant, I will sacrifice a thank offering to you. I will invoke the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord. And notice where he says he's going to do this. In the presence of all his people. He doesn't stop there. In the courts of the house of the Lord. Now he's moving towards the temple. 
And in the midst of Jerusalem, I will sing a hallelujah. When God does gracious things for you and for us, one expectation that he has for us in this new relationship as his people is to make famous the name of the Lord, to demonstrate utmost loyalty among the nations. Number two, you give grace. There's a saying we use sometimes like parent like child. You know that phrase? Uh, and sometimes we use that like, you know, my, my dad, my mom always used to say this about me because I, I do things an awful lot like my dad, for better or worse, right? And she, if she's watching right now, she's chuckling at that and probably nudging my dad, saying, hey, wake up. Anyways, uh, <laughs> let's just be honest. Like, like parent, like child. This is actually a, almost like a rule in the ancient world. It was a, that was an expectation. And the reason for that is because it was the parent's responsibility for passing on tradition, right? For telling you, this is how you ought to think, do, feel, and believe as you go. And so you get texts like Deuteronomy 6, which we com commonly, eh, I commonly call it the Shema. Hear, O Israel. And you get the bit about the tradition. And you get this language of talking about this as you're going up and down the road and when you're getting up in the morning and going to bed at night. You're going out and you're extolling the Lord by the things that you're saying, giving honor, but you are also demonstrating this by sharing the teaching and by giving the same kind of grace to others, especially your brothers and sisters, because you have been graced by God. First John talks about this very carefully, defines love. He says, you know, you need to love your sisters and your brothers. If you don't, you're a murderer just like Cain. And we all know, he says, that murderers do not inherit the kingdom of God. But he goes deeper. He actually puts a little bit of the rubber on the road and he says, if a brother or sister comes to you and they don't have the stuff of life, that which is going to help them stay alive, the, the bioi, you know, the bios system of your computer, it's the life of your computer, it's the word that he uses in Greek, it's the stuff of life, it keeps you alive. If you don't help meet their needs, that basically means you're a murderer. The letter of James talks a lot about this as well. We talked about widows and orphans people on the fringe. They're actually people who are not on the fringe. They're in liminal space. They don't know who they are or where they belong. Meet their needs. If someone comes to you and is naked or hungry and you say, be warmed and filled, that's nah, not meeting their needs. Meet their needs. It's showing grace to people who need to have grace shown to them. And it's increasing the fame or the honor of the Lord, of the benefactor, of the giver. And I put in parentheses here, and I probably should have made it the, the point here, it's not about increasing our own fame. One of the interesting things to me when we talk about evangelism is we sometimes talk about it in, and, and we tell people about uh, Jesus, not so much about Jesus, but about our church. Have you ever noticed that? We're to be motivated by the grace that God has given to us. We're to be motivated by the gift that God has given through Jesus Christ, and yet we often are saying, hey, come check out our church because this is how we do X, Y, and Z. Okay, you know, some of that's fine, but the bottom line of it is, maybe we should start talking about our purpose and our goal as a body of believers that meets at the Springs, or wherever you may be visiting from, is to honor and extol the name of the Lord. That happens in worship, but that also happens in going on mission. So here we are in Go Month. Why are you all still here? 
That's a John Osborne joke. He owes me 75 cents for saying that out loud. But even though it's kind of a joke, think about it. It's a legit question, is it not? If the expectation that God has of us as his children is to go and spread his name and be heralds, then we should do so. We should close with this text from Matthew. Now, the 11 disciples, I got to get to this one. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the hill where Jesus directed them. And seeing him, they paid him homage, but they doubted. That's a whole other sermon. And as Jesus approached, he spoke to them, saying, All authority, I am the kurios, not the world. All authority has been given to me in heaven and upon the earth. Therefore, note this carefully, as you are going. It's interesting that in Greek, that's not the command. Go is not the command. The command is make disciples. The assumption is, the expectation is, you'll already be out and about, motivated by the grace of God, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. As you are going, make disciples of all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of, of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to keep all of whatever I've commanded you, and lo, or indeed, I will be with you. We serve a kurios, a Lord who goes with us on mission. Let's go with him. Let's sing and worship together.